The Athletic. Pointe-Held Frensen was meant to be Williams' next great signing, but after being brought in at the expense of world champion Damon Hill, he only took one victory for the team. That win came early on in his time at Williams at the 1997 San Marino Grand Prix, but rather than being a sign of Frensen turning a corner, it proved to be little more than a false dawn. This was a time of significant change looming on the F1 horizon, with drastic rule changes for 1998 dominating debate in the paddock and the legal battle over Adrian Newey's seismic move from Williams to McLaren finally being concluded. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to discuss all of that and much more, are Ed Straw and making his first appearance of the series, Matt Beer. Now Matt, until you mentioned that you hadn't been on one in this uh, series, I hadn't I'd, I'd pass me by. I just assume that you're making three or four appearances <laughs> per series. So I can only massively apologise for that. We've taken far too long to get you on. So let's not waste any more time getting you your first opening question of Series 7. Tell us, when you think of the 1997 San Marino Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm going to go massively general and not obscure at all. It's the, the one afternoon when for the only British teenager who thought Damon Hill was rubbish and Heinz Harold Frentzen was the future, it was the one afternoon of vindication until the complete vindication of 1999. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, Ed, what stands out for you? Matt said he was going to go mainstream and not obscure. So how have you managed to go obscure, I wonder? I'm actually not too obscure this time, although it is down the field. I'm kind of approaching it from the reverse side of the same coin. As a Damon Hill fan at the time, it was what I consider the nadir of the Hill Arrows adventure with the pit lane start and then the utterly futile collision with Shinji Nakano. I don't think there was much defending that one, but I actually did quite like Frentzen, but yeah, the Hill Arrows adventure was a big part of that. I think this was the point where you realised just how bad that year was going to be. Agreed. Let's hear some memories from our audience next. For this one, we put the call out to members of our new Bring Back V10's Twitter community. So thank you to everyone who has joined that already to show your support for the show and to find somewhere to share your love of all things classic F1 with uh, what's now hundreds of like-minded people. To find the group and to join us there, head to the Communities button on the Twitter app or in your browser. It's basically the button that looks like two little characters next to each other um, and once you're there search for bring back v10s and you'll hopefully find us and uh, ed and i are in there trying to respond when we can ed will post various back markers and, and comments at, at all sorts of strange times and uh, i will almost certainly respond whenever you mention jack villeneuve let's hear some responses from that group then uh, alex cooper says uh, he remembers thinking that this would be the start of frentzen's big step forward in a williams Ansi Rulamo says Frentzen's win turned out to be a false dawn. Couldn't agree more with that. Thomas Knight says this win was such an outlier at the start of Frentzen's season. Uh, Patrick Delay or Dealey remembers thinking that this would be the first win of many for Frentzen at Williams. And thank you to Mark Martin and Christopher Foxen for mentioning Frentzen's weird oil on my soul comment after winning. That one's always stuck with me, mainly because I have no idea what it means. Uh, Stephen Gate picked another moment that's burned into my memory. Fissy Keller's lightning reflexes to avoid Coulthard when the McLaren's engine blew up in his face. That was really, really dramatic. And actually, having watched this race back, that McLaren was 
spewing oil for so long it's it's kind of a sign of the era that they didn't just pull that car in they just let him keep driving around until it blew up uh, lots of you mentioned the hill nakano crash as ed did there uh thank you to david wally Stuart Coulter, Tom Miller, Tom Parker, Jamie Hutchins and Ash for that. Philip Etzinger chose Gerhard Berger doing his 200th race in a way that was fairly typical for his final season because Gerhard spun out early on. And Philip says, I remember being torn between realising that he's pretty much done and not wanting that to be the case. And uh, Chris Partridge and Caelan Martin also picked that one. We're edging ever closer to the end of the series, and that means it's your chance to ask us anything about the V10 era of F1 from 1989 to 2005. Submit your question using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or you can email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. We'll also be doing a special exclusive questions episode for the Race Members Club after this series. So if you want to be part of that, head to the-race.com forward slash members club to sign up. Remember, that also gets you early access to new episodes of the show, as well as other benefits from the race. On to 1997 then, or as I like to think of it, Bliss. Uh, Championship leader Jacques Villeneuve, who else, came out swinging against the new groove tyres that were being introduced to slow the cars down for 1998 after he tried them out for the first time in testing. Villeneuve said that driving on groove tyres felt like going back 30 years, that it was like driving on sand or in the rain, and that they would destroy racing. Explaining that final point, he added, When you start braking, it's not much different in feel, but in the last 15 to 20 metres, it slides incredibly. So instead of overtaking the guy next to you, you'll crash into him. What they are proposing scares me because it's not going to be F1 anymore. He said that the cars would now reach their limit long before the drivers, which would let the mediocre drivers get closer to the good guys. He said there would be no risk, no rush and no precision in driving. And if F1 went ahead with these changes, then IndyCar racing would become the pinnacle of single-seater motorsport. Rainy World Champion Damon Hill tried the tyres as well, and he said his experience was not as bad as Villeneuve's. Hill said it wasn't as bad as he expected, but he found it difficult to come to any conclusion on the tyres other than that they were one way to slow the cars down. Good stuff, Damon. Ed, we're focusing really here on Villeneuve's rant, which is, is incredibly memorable. Was he going over the top here, do you think? Yeah, there was certainly a bit of hyperbole at play here. I do see where he was coming from, but... While there was some legitimate criticism at the heart of it, he framed it as the walls of F1 civilization being torn down. And I think he needed to bear in mind that those early tests were with pretty much cut and shut tyres, weren't they, with the, the slick, the, the grooves cut into them. So they were always going to be better than that because they were very much the early test ones. You could also see, actually, from that quote, I can understand why Villeneuve in particular didn't like the idea just from a purely his driving perspective because he did like a very kind of decisive turn in the car to load up quickly. So that extra vagueness that the groove tyres did bring in probably wasn't ideal for him. But yeah, he did go a little bit too far. I think my favourite thing about the criticism, which went on for some time and got him in all sorts of trouble with the FIA, is he said it a few times. There, there were quotes about him attacking Max Mosey, saying, oh, he's never driven a race in his life, which I always thought was quite funny because, of course, obviously nobody had told him that Max Mosley did race up to F2 level. In fact, he was a few cars behind Jim Clark at Hockenheim on that fateful day when Clark lost his life. So Mosley knew a thing or two about driving, even though he's no <laughs> great driver. But yeah, it was clear at Villeneuve 
was also frustrated nobody else would join his crusade. I think he managed to enlist Williams test driver Jules Bouillon, who criticised the tyres later on. Schumacher was kind of gently critical later in the year. But yeah, Villeneuve just went really over the top, I think, and he ended up in front of the World Motorsport Council for it later on. So yeah, I don't think it really helped because it, it when you take an exaggerated position on something and you basically say this will be making it almost like F3, you sound a bit stupid, especially when you in one sentence say it's going to make it really dangerous and you're going to crash into people in the braking zone. And then in the other, you're going to say, well, it's really easy and even someone mediocre could do well. So it's Jacques Villeneuve. He shoots from the hip. It wasn't the most measured critique, whereas I think a more measured critique perhaps would have had a little bit more sympathy from those listening. That's fair enough, Ed, but also Villeneuve was absolutely right. This this was a period of my life when I was unduly influenced by things Jacques Villeneuve thought, and that was a period that didn't last particularly long in my case. But In your case? Exactly. Just looking at the early pictures of not just the groove tyres, but the narrow track cars with the initial, like you say, cut and shuts, putting that alongside what the actual 97 cars looked like, it was offensively different. It was it looked like such a step backwards in performance and technology. Villeneuve made the comparison to uh, what was by then car, champ car in IndyCar naming war terms. And those cars just looked so much better in every way at that point and so much more like proper racing cars. So I still have great sympathy for Villeneuve's round. I still think he was along the right lines, even if he was over the top. Even if you grudgingly accepted groove tyres as a solution for tyre war time, just, just get rid of the grooves when the tyre war's gone. You can just control it in a, in a different way. And I still find it offensive that F1 had grooves when its feeder series were on proper slicks for so long. It's just, it's one of the few things from the 90s that I'm still annoyed about in the 2020s. Oh no, I certainly didn't like it. But yeah, you don't make your point very well when you go quite so far. I think I sent it to you the other day in, in WhatsApp. I found a quote from the race's own Gary Anderson then at Jordan where he basically said, oh, well, the cars will look a bit weird because the aspect ratio will go odd. But the drivers will complain a lot, then get used to it. And that was pretty much what happened. But yeah, groove tyres were not a great idea. So Villeneuve was in the right ballpark, but I think he was playing the wrong game. Let's put it that way with how he presented his case. So why were the groove tyres coming in then? FIA President Max Mosley explained that something needed to be done to slow down the severe escalation in speeds that was being caused by F1's new tyre war between Goodyear and Bridgestone. Talking of Bridgestone, uh, the head of its F1 programme, Hiroshi Yasukawa, was credited by Mosley as being the person who came up with the idea of adding the grooves to reduce grip. That might explain why Goodyear expressed a public objection to the change. Uh, the goal was to reduce the contact patch of the tyre, and the FIA had ruled out doing that by just making the slicks narrower, as that would reduce drag and make the cars even faster at the end of the straights. The tyres, the wheels, are one of the biggest drag-producing aspects of a Formula 1 car, even today. Mosley said at Imola, Before long, cornering speeds are going to be dangerous again. To intervene on tyres was the most effective solution. He said he was delighted that the early tests showed the grooves were an effective way of curbing speeds, and he pointed out that this was the first attempt at the tyres, which would get better with more development, as we've already touched on. Mosley's aim was to get the cars back to 1996 lap times, which he said would not mean slowing them down dramatically. On Villeneuve's safety concerns, Mosley said in his book that he'd done a few sums to convince himself that once again conventional wisdom was wrong and that less grip in fact meant more safety in racing. Matt, whatever you think of groove tyres and, and there's universal dislike for them here, which I'm pleased to hear, were the decisions at least based on sound logic from Mosley and the FIA? 
Well, grudgingly, yes, they, they absolutely <laughs> were. Yeah. You've got to remember, 97 was not long after 1994 at all. This was the first time F1 was trying to deal with a massive increase in speeds after it had got its safety house in order. I totally get why the FIA didn't want cornering speeds rocketing out of control. The tyres were the cause of it. Neutering the tyres was a way of solving that. I, I, just, I absolutely follow all of that. I just think someone should have intervened on this looks stupid and embarrassing grounds. And I do think Max Mosley's delight in picking a fight probably played into his advocacy of it to a degree as well. Mosley also countered suggestions from Williams's Patrick Head, who went down the more popular route of suggesting reducing downforce and increasing mechanical grip through the tyres. Head said that if downforce levels were dramatically reduced, then speeds would come down as the FIA wanted and a F1's age-old problem of dirty air ruining racing would not exist. Mosley addressed this point at the time, saying, We have tried to decrease aerodynamic downforce for 25 years and failed. The cars just got faster and faster. Ed, where, where do we sit on the aero versus mechanical grip debate? Was Head right or did Mosley have a point that by now we knew it was just too difficult to cut downforce? Well, Mosley was right insofar as any attempt to cut downforce previously genuinely had at best stemmed the tide rather than turning it. But at the same time, Head was correct that downforce was the main driver of it. I think the problem is you're battling against technology here and whether you're battling against aero technology, against tyre technology, the industry of the teams and the advancement of understanding will always be working against you. I think it created a bit of a false dichotomy, really, because there's rarely really simple solutions to complex problems. Every now and again, if you're lucky, you do. But F1 does tend to present these solutions and they swing wildly over the years in terms of where those solutions are, are focused. And it still happens today that you can oversimplify the problems you're trying to fix. And then you don't fully understand what you're trying to do. And of course, the irony that, I don't know, 20 years after this, the solution to F1's problems was to go to wider cars, more downforce, wider tyres, etc. So it just goes to show over a long enough period of time, just about every direction is considered. And funnily enough, none of them work. So I feel like it was a limited debate. But at the same time, I can see why Mosey's position was sort of internally consistent. Although that reference you said earlier about him doing a few sums was slightly concerning. That doesn't sound like a comprehensive scientific analysis, does it? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it was a time when, while the FIA was transitioning into a much more science-based system, the tracking of accident data, etc., had grown dramatically since Senna it was still quite a long way off where it needed to be. So there was still a lot of kind of sticking your finger in the air, seeing where the wind was blowing and then deciding what to do, coupled with what Matt referred to earlier as mostly like to pick a fight, etc. So there was always this polarisation underpinning it. So yeah, mostly solution was sort of logical and okay, wasn't it? And his position sort of made sense, but it it wasn't a 360 degree solution, I, I would say that. And at the heart of it was always these polarised debates. Is it X or Y that cause it, causes it? Well, no, it's X and Y and all the other letters of the alphabet that are contributing to this problem in various means. And you only solve it by tackling all of them. Or just take the wings off. <laughs> Why does nobody ever do that? Just take, take the big wings off. Take the real problem away. Debate for another time. Uh, talking of tyres... Uh, which we don't normally say that often on this show, uh, Goodyear was under fire from Ferrari, 
whose president, Luca de Montezemolo, called Goodyear a giant that is sleeping and he told it to wake up. He said he was confident that Goodyear would make better tyres in the future and he stressed that Ferrari had a long-term contract with them. But he claimed at this stage in 1997, Ferrari would be a second a lap faster on Bridgestone tyres. On the subject of tyre contracts, there were lots of reports in various media outlets at this point, the Goodyear teams were looking into how watertight their contracts were to see if there was a way to switch to Bridgestone. At the time, there wasn't, but later on, when Goodyear announced it was pulling out at the end of 1998, that voided any longer-term contracts and allowed teams to switch. So that's how McLaren and Benetton, for example, managed to swap to Bridgestone for 1998. But Matt, looking at Montezemolo's argument... Did he have a point? Were the Bridgestones that good? Because we're only a few races into Bridgestone being in F1 at this point. Yeah, I, I think they were. I think Bridgestone had played an absolute blinder by preparing quietly in Japan and then going, oh, we're going to turn up in 97, not in 98. So taking advantage of Goodyear, both underestimating what competition would mean and then giving itself an enormous head start by and catching Goodyear completely on the back foot by turning up a year earlier than planned. So Goodyear didn't have much chance to respond to a threat it seemed to be underestimating anyway, which was quite a double whammy. Had anyone good been on Bridgestones, as in like genuinely good that year, I, th- I honestly think someone in a sort of, oh, let's get really bold. Would Jordan have been champion with Bridgestones? Should I go that bold? I'm going to go that bold. Yeah, that'll do. Someone in that sort of range could have pulled off something amazing that year, I think. Now, by this time, the, the main signs of Bridgestone being great had been a couple of really strong race drives from Olivia Panis and the Prost. You couldn't really judge the Bridgestones when it was with a Prost team that was just about getting to that very French mess it got into. And teams like Stewart, brand new, and Minardi. Uh, who else had Bridgestones? I've got a mind block. Arrows. Arrows, of course, arrows. I've forgotten them at this point. I was too busy hating Damon Hill. But <laughs> um, but yeah, they were not good benchmarks for how good the Bridgestones really were, but they were making enough of a difference. It wasn't consistent. You know, there were, there were races where Bridgestone was absolutely nowhere. Conversely, there were races where Bridgestone made Goodyear look really, really daft. I wouldn't say they were they weren't necessarily game-changing. I haven't done an Ed-style full dip into super times and stats, but I don't feel like, for instance, at the back, the Tyrrell versus Minardi situation changed a great deal from Minardi being on Bridgestones and Tyrrell being on, on Goodyear's that year. They were both doing much the same as they'd done on the same tyres in 1996, in a way. But I think, say Ferrari had bolted Bridgestones on, it would have given it a, an enormous advantage over the Goodyear shot Williams at some really key races, and it would have swung the title battle. So it was a, it, they were better enough to have made a critical difference if any top team had been bold enough to go for it we didn't mention lola had they continued they could have maybe won some races oh, but yeah yeah I, I don't think jordan would have won the championship i think they'd have won a lot of races the reason i don't think they'd have won the championship i think was more down to the driver lineup they had in terms of yeah, inexperience true. but it's interesting it's very very hard to quantify it now the one thing about the bridgestones is they were quite erratic that year they weren't completely understood by Bridgestone. As you say, they've been preparing for ages. The, the product was good, but they were quite erratic and there were good and bad weekends. And that wasn't only because of the teams they were with, but it's very difficult to say what the Bridgestone performance was worth. But if you use, say, Minardi as a benchmark, they were about 1% closer to the pace in 97 compared to 96. Now, that can be down to many factors, but you could argue that, say, a Benetton or a Jordan or even a McLaren could have had, say, a 1% on average performance gain from that, which would have been enough to put them at the front. So it's quite an interesting consideration just how good the Bridgestones were. Certainly, Goodyear realised just how much Bridgestone was taking the game on 
already there and all the teams were hence what Glenn was talking about with teams trying to to change and Ferrari talking about how much they could have gained from that I love that Ed either analysed Minardi's lap times in advance or did it during the course of my answer. That is why I like sharing an episode with Ed because it means I don't have to do those things. I did it during the course of the episode, actually. I have these numbers to hand just in case I need them. <laughs> for when you need them. There's, there's always a reason for Ed to bring out backmarker super times. There should be a different name for them when it's backmarkers, though, shouldn't it? Because there's nothing super about them. Adequate times. <laughs> Rubbish times. We're still not done with tyre chat as uh, Michelin sport boss Pierre Dupasquier visited the San Marino Grand Prix on a fact-finding mission. Dupasquier said he was having a look around to see if Michelin could come into F1 for 1999. He felt that Michelin had enough, ex- enough experience of other top levels of motorsport that it had a good understanding of what would be needed in F1, but he said it would need a test programme with F1 cars to make sure of that. Ed, at this stage in 97, we didn't know Goodyear were going to pull out. How exciting would a three-way tyre war have been for F1? Yeah, the two-way tyre war was pretty good. A third party in it, provided they were decent, could have been pretty good. Goodyear, of course, would have had to up their game. I think, I'm not sure whether they really had the, the heart for that, ultimately, as proved by what happens, but they could have been kind of a third tyre manufacturer to have a de facto frontline team, if you like, tailoring their tyres for someone. So it could have made the following years pretty dramatic. They could also have just struggled and not been able to keep up because obviously they'd had it all their own way from 92 to 96 since Pirelli had pulled out and Pirelli in that period weren't massively stiff opposition, to be fair, except on given days. So yeah, if you're going to have a tyre war, the more the merrier, because that can create some really interesting scenarios and give teams a performance boost as well. Let's move away from tyres. That was that was more than enough. At least, as we said there, they they are in, more interesting in a tyre war. Uh, the legal battle over Adrian Newey's move from Williams to McLaren ended before it had its day in court, with the teams agreeing a settlement that would allow Newey to start work at McLaren on August the 1st. Newey wrote in his book that he was disappointed when Ron Dennis settled with Williams out of court, as by this stage, Newey felt he had a strong case and he was looking forward to going through the process. Speaking in F1 News magazine at the time, Newey called the August start date a problem because it was too late to start work on a new car with new rules coming in for 1998. He said that in a stable set of rules, it would have been leaving it late, but possible. Going back to his book, he admitted that while on gardening leave, he got hold of the 1998 rules and started sketching designs at home before he started at McLaren. I'd say there's nothing wrong with that, really. Although uh, he also said he had phone calls with Ilmore's Mario Illion about the 1998 Mercedes engine. And he knew his own words. Those calls were, I guess, strictly speaking, illegal. Uh, Matt, regardless of legalities, how much of a head start... Do you think Newey with a drawing board could give himself working from home before he started at McLaren? How much faster than everybody else was McLaren at the start of the 1998 season? (laughs) Good answer. This had an effect, didn't it? It's right. Component production lead times would have been a factor. There must have been things Newey could not get done in time. However, if Adrian Newey's on gardening leave, all of his hedges are going to look like F1 car front wings. He's going to be used. You cannot switch his brain off as as those little snippets about sketches and phone calls and stuff proved. So without suggesting that anything illegal went on, also McLaren would have also been ready to maximise this. There's no way McLaren would have gone, oh, we've already built all these things and, and set up these parts of the design. You have to have a little chat about the 1999 car. McLaren would have known what it was getting and when it was getting it, and it would have exploited every possible avenue it, it could to make sure Newey had 
every bit of involvement he could in the 1998 car. It might ironically even have helped McLaren because he was insulated from the day-to-day nonsense of running a car and he could just think. And what's the worst thing you can do with Adrian Newey? Give him a set of rules and let him think and and, uh, sketch out ideas or even... (laughs) Maybe do some tentative MP413 work in topiary with his uh, hedges while on his gardening leaf. So, yeah, you might actually be better, funnily enough, when you have someone like that, just letting them go so they can get sucked into the day-to-day rather than just conceptualising. Don't let Adrian Newey spend time conceptualising, then you're in all sorts of trouble. I've now got visions that over the course of this gardening leaf, he made all of his hedges 20 millimetres narrower. Just to get a feeling for that and then start stupid groove putting grooves in the front of them as well yeah uh Nui was asked in f1 news magazine why he wanted to switch teams and he referenced his ongoing rival ross braun making a comment about wanting a fresh challenge after winning two championships at benetton then going to ferrari Nui said he wasn't someone who'd want to move teams all the time but he felt a fresh challenge could occasionally be stimulating He went into more detail on this in his book, saying that a big motivating factor was to be in full charge of a technical team, as he felt a reputation was developing around him that he needed someone like Patrick Head to calm my so-called excesses. Newey added, There had sprung up an enduring paddock myth that I somehow needed reining in, and that during my time at Williams, Patrick had stopped me going too far. I didn't feel it was true, or if it was true, then I had learned my lessons. But as a myth, it persisted, and so naturally I wanted to prove it untrue. Ed, a quarter of a century on, we know exactly how good Adrian Newey is. Was that perception he mentioned back in 1997 understandable at all, given his career up to that point? I think it was understandable, but it really was a caricature, wasn't it? I think it as he alluded to, did stem from some of the extremes he went to with the Leighton House. And he was still prone to going off on some slight extreme tangents. But I think that more reflects everything. Nobody has all the answers. So yeah, he does benefit from being in a team where his ideas can be challenged and discussed and you can get in other perspectives. But that's the case with absolutely anybody in any area, really. Nobody has all the answers. I think it suited Williams as well to have that sort of perception. We know that Williams probably slightly undervalued Newey. It was a terrible mistake to let him go. They've never really got on level aero terms with the rest of F1 ever since. They've never recovered. They've never recovered from letting him go. Exactly. You can trace the teams to climb back to that. It wasn't the only factor, but it was a big one and made a big difference. So, yeah, Newey isn't some mad genius who, if you leave him on his own, will design a car that you can't put a driver in or something which I think is sometimes the idea. well yeah obviously Van Capelli will tell you some interesting stories about the uh, about the March Leighton house days but yeah sure he, he benefits from that wider input and I think we also have to remember we can't completely disconnect this from the whole feeling he's had at Williams at the time we've talked about this before about the reasons why he wanted to leave and not feeling he was sort of fully valued and seen as as part of his team so it's probably connected to that as well in that he wanted to say well look I do know what I'm doing but yeah I, I think the caricature w- was slightly uh, was slightly odd but it has been enduring because you've still got people in the Red Bull days talking about how important it was they got Jeff Willis in to do that job but it's always oversimplifying anybody will always be better when plugged into a bigger wider system and actually I'd say Newey has benefited from that as well because you've been able to take his great creative thinking and 
temper it with all these other inputs as well. It's a collaborative effort. And it's the fact Newey has been able to thrive almost as a one-man band in F1 all the way through to the current era is testament to how good he is because he is willing to work with people and he is willing to take ideas on board and, and, and modify his thinking according to those inputs. That's why he's so good. Newey's name cropped up in a report in The Times about British-American tobacco's plans to get into F1 team ownership. The rumours of a BAT super team that would eventually become BAR were very fresh at this point and the tobacco company was being linked to buying an existing team. It was said that BAT wanted to own at least 50% of a team and it had had discussions with Arrows, Williams, Prost and ProDrive. They wanted Jacques Villeneuve as lead driver, Reynard to build the cars and Newey to design them. A source quoted by The Times said, It's going to turn the F1 world on its ear. It will involve a lot of big names and a lot of surprises. They have everything lined up. Matt, they didn't quite have everything lined up because they got Villeneuve and Reynard but missed out on Newey. Could he have been the missing piece to prevent BAR's embarrassing start in 1999? It's up there with Newey's abortive move to Jaguar as that big question of what would happen if you dropped Newey into a shambles? <laughs> and the answer is probably some really, really good things. Now, so BAR's problems, a lot of them around unreliability, being caught out by an engine vibration it hadn't seen coming. I don't know how much Newey would have been foreseeing that sort of thing. I'm sure he would have designed a better car, but I wonder if he would have conquered the reliability problem that I think was actually the biggest issue that stopped BAR looking respectable that year. I think... Yeah, that was not a disastrous car as a theory. But also, there was this whole tension between Reynard and Adrian Reynard and BAT and the role of Reynard in the profile of the team, which led to effectively the car's designers sort of appearing to get a bit disinterested during the course of the year. Now, if Newey had been there, might BAT have just moved on from Reynard a bit quicker and established its own setup? Could it have even done that? Would this have been parachuting Newey into Reynard and having this massive discord within within Reynard. This, it's, this is not a situation where an, an, an Adrian Newey-shaped piece of Lego fits that BAR hole and makes it complete. He would have been an asset to the team, but there were, there were other things that he would not have been able to fix. I think he could have been very beneficial if listened to in terms of shaping how that team was set up because he was always very, very good at knowing what technologies, what areas of research, etc., would be so important. So I think he could have also had a role in shaping that team, whether it could have been powerful enough with all the other things going on is another matter, of course. Yeah, I don't think we could have Adrian Newey and Adrian Reynard working together. Too many Adrians. Um, no team can have that many. Uh, we mentioned ProDrive there, obviously not an F1 team, but they were close to BAT through running the 555-sponsored Subaru World Rally Team, so BAT leaned on the expertise of ProDrive boss David Richards. Richards said in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2007 that BAT asked him what they should do, and he said the best thing would be to be to buy an existing team rather than start one from scratch. He identified Benetton as the ideal candidate, given it was still a front runner, even if it had fallen from the title-winning heights of the Schumacher years. Rumours got out at Imola that Benetton might be for sale, although the BAT link wasn't made at the time. However, Alessandro Benetton said his family had no intention of putting the team up for sale or letting it go. And he added, We intend to go ahead without placing any limits on our participation in Formula 1. Another hypothetical then, Ed. How might a Benetton BAT tie-up 
have worked out for both sides? Well, it would have been a profoundly easier start for BAT and F1, wouldn't it? An existing team not long ago, champions still a lot of good people there. Obviously, they'd had the Ferrari brain drain, losing people like Roy Byrne and Ross Braun, but massively, massively more cost-effective. So it could have completely changed because BAR in 99 was, to all intents and purposes, a startup, wasn't it? Yeah, they bought Tyrrell, but very little Tyrrell in that team. So, yeah, a huge difference. They still have the problem of engine supply, etc., but who knows? Maybe there was a... A BAT Benetton, I'm sure the Benetton name would have been dropped with Honda engines down the line anyway, but a team that's more able to make the most of that, particularly in the the earlier days. And it was an odd time for Benetton, obviously losing the Renault engines at the end of the season when Renault pulled out and they had to go with the continuation Renaults, the uh, the Mechachrome later Supertech engines. And Benetton was clearly looking around because there were stories as well around that time, maybe a little bit after, of the likes of Audi looking at buying Benetton. So, yeah, it was a few weeks after this. Yeah, yeah, so I think that would have been a great opportunity actually for both sides. And given what that team did do once it was sold a few years later when Renault bought it and they went on to have all that success with Fernando Alonso, I think that would have been an absolutely ideal thing to do because you just get a great start with a team that's been around for a long time and very, very well established. I doubt any of those Audi stories said, give it three decades and then they'll buy Sauber. Uh, (laughs) Another team with a big decision looming was Jordan, which was battling to retain a Peugeot engine supplier for 1998 when the French manufacturer would become Prost's works partner. As we mentioned in our Prost 97 episode previously, Eddie Jordan had held up the process for approving Ligier's name change to Prost so he could get guarantees that he would be allowed to negotiate with Peugeot as well. Jordan said he had until the end of June to convince Peugeot to keep supplying Jordan with engines. Peugeot sport boss uh, Pierre-Michel Fauconnier uh, said they were impressed with Jordan's commitment to investing money back into his team. And Peugeot was keen to reap the benefit of its three-year association with Jordan. Jordan wrote in his book that he felt he lost out on a Peugeot supply due to a mix of French and F1 politics. Of course, given how badly Peugeot's remaining three years in F1 with Prost went, uh, EJ said those involved were actually doing Jordan a favour, although at the time I did not see it that way. Matt, had Jordan earned the right to get an extension with Peugeot at this point? And let's not forget, in 97, the Peugeot engine was good. Yeah, absolutely. Jordan was the right level for Peugeot through the mid-90s. You know, Peugeot was not ready to be a title-winning F1 engine by any means. In fact, it obviously never was remotely. But it was, <laughs> you know, 96, it was it was doing some pretty good figures. Jordan had some good performances on straight-line speed-heavy circuits. Okay, Jordan certainly didn't stagnate, but it wasn't like a linear path upwards at this point. So I could see a little bit of, is this the right horse to back? And when that's kind of put alongside all the French pressure to team up with Alain Prost and go with the conversion of the Ligier project, I can see how that became tempting to Peugeot ultimately Jordan was a team that never got the resources to be an F1 champion Peugeot was a manufacturer that was never willing to put in the resources to become an F1 champion it was going to end messily if they had stayed together but Jordan was on a great trend it had only pulled off the Benson Hedges deal on the eve of the season effectively in 96 this was only just really paying off in 97 so although there were although Peugeot's reasoning was sort of patriotically understandable there were already signs that it was backing the wrong horse and it would have done better sticking with Jordan. But ultimately, we know it would have just dragged Jordan down and uh, and probably prevented the glory of 99 ever happening. This, of course, is part of one of my favourite Bring Back V10's tropes, which is the French super team, the Prost, Ligier, Peugeot, Elf, all the French companies, Jean Alessi, all these drivers talked about 
regularly over over quite a few years. It's come up probably five or six times on Bring Back V10. So I think regardless of what Jordan had done, they were going to lose it, weren't they? But it, it's just funny that Peugeot had made this progress and it was looking quite promising, actually. They they needed to grow up in F1 and actually they and Jordan were growing up quite well together. So they were good for each other in that regard. But yeah, that's uh, that allure of the French super team, the one that would get one lucky second place and what a few sixth places in their years together was obviously too much for everybody involved. But yeah, just uh, ill-starred, I think would be the, the word to use for that. But Jordan Peugeot, who knows what they could have done. Now, as part of his play at the time to keep the Peugeot deal, Jordan said that he believed engine manufacturers should be obliged to supply more than one team. He said, I'm not criticising Peugeot, but it's in its interest to stay with us for another year or two. Just like tyre suppliers, engine manufacturers should be obliged to supply a certain number of teams. What Renault, Ford and now Ferrari are doing is good for the sport. The others should do the same. Peugeot acknowledged this potential situation too, saying Bernie Eccleston was putting pressure on all the manufacturers to supply two teams. However, they hinted at the likely stumbling block, saying Peugeot accountants had worked out that supplying a second team would add 50% to the cost of its F1 project. Ed, would this have been a good idea to force manufacturers to supply more than one team? Well, I'm sure if you're Eddie Jordan and you're about to lose Peugeot to a team for probably political reasons, you probably think it's a great idea. But yeah, I mean, it has its appeal. You have to frame it correctly. We have seen later on as rules have come in subsequently with having to supply the same spec and even going back before that when there were cost controls on how much you could charge for an engine deal, etc. It worked quite well. But what you don't need is to create a situation where you have to supply more than one team, but you can supply them a very, very old spec engine or whatever. There were various Ford engine specs going around of different levels at this time. For example, that Ferrari deal that Sauber had was uh, certainly a step back as well from the latest year old, Ferrari. Wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So you need to frame it in the right way. So it was quite a nice idea, but I suspect it would have very much been done as, right, you've got your works team and then you've got your mandatory customer team. And that cost point means that there might have been an incentive to kind of have the second team to use up the bits in your parts bin and just be a cheap one a little bit, I guess, like when Honda had their second works team with Tyrrell and that was the old engine. So it was kind of that sort of project. It was never really full on front line. So it would all depend how you frame the regulations. But yeah, for Eddie Jordan, a... uh, a rule like that would be a great idea because it means you keep your Peugeot engines rather than having to go to a Mugen Honda that was actually less powerful. Down at Arrows, big changes were being made with design legend John Barnard being brought in by team owner Tom Walkinshaw. Barnard had recently acquired the UK-based Ferrari design office he'd set up and he'd been loaned the £800,000 required to buy it from Ferrari. Um... <laughs> Barnard had renamed the operation B3 and Walkinshaw now wanted to pay the same price, 800 grand again, to acquire it and integrate it into TWR. Barnard would then be paid 250 pounds, uh, 250 pounds, that's incredibly cheap, 250,000 pounds a month to lead the design of Arrows' F1 cars. Damon Hill might think that the original Arrows he drove uh, only cost 250 quid. 
Later in the year, Barnard would make improvements to the car, reworking the suspension, putting lead weights in the front wing to work the front tyres harder, and increasing the size of the airbox to generate more engine power. The full integration of B3 into TWR and Arrows never happened, for reasons we'll cover another time. But Barnard was there long enough to design the team's 1998 car, which would be his last full car project in F1. Ed, when Arrows got Barnard on board, so around March, April 1997, how big a deal was that? Was his stock still high in F1? Yeah, I still think it was very high. It wasn't perhaps as sky high as it had been. I think the luster had been taken a little bit off by the the struggles with Ferrari and the two stints there and that foray with Benetton, all of which we've covered before on Bring Back V10s. But it did contribute to the idea this Arrows project was going places. I think although 97 was pretty bad, and obviously the arrival of Hill, which was opportunistic and early, really, did make it look like it was all a little bit getting ahead of itself. But there was still this fundamental belief that TWR, which of course had had so much success in tin tops and sports car racing, and also through the affiliation with Benetton, could do well. So Barnard certainly did add a lot to that. I think fundamentally, the reason that team failed was it didn't have the money and it had a Yamaha engine. That that just didn't work. They needed to be more successful more quickly, I think, to get that financial stability that they never achieved. But there were some serious names involved with that. And although Barnard was kind of deemed surplus to requirements by the, the, the top few teams in Formula One, he still had a huge amount to offer. He, after all, had had a profound role in shaping how Formula One was at this time. So still somebody who attracted a huge amount of respect, but it just never played out. It didn't fail because John Barnard wasn't up to it. As you say, the plan never really came through and he had a bit of an impact with what he could in the time, but it it was just it was just a non-starter ultimately because the team just didn't have the money underpinning it to sustain the growth that was needed. We'll stick with Arrows uh, briefly as we look at the race weekend itself. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Damon Hill had qualified 15th, but he started from the pit lane due to an oil leak and when trying to make his way back through the back half of the field, he collided with the Prost of Shinji Nakano. And collided is a polite way of saying he took out Shinji Nakano. And Nakano said he looked in his mirrors going into the final chicane, saw Hill was behind him, then got hit by the world champion. An angry Hill said he went for a gap and Nakano didn't move over and turned in. And Damon added, I thought it was an ambitious move, but I wasn't going to chug round at the back. I don't feel I should be doing that. Hill was given a suspended one-race ban, uh, as was uh, his Arrows teammate Pedro Diniz for ignoring blue flags in the race. And actually, both Williams drivers got the same punishment for ignoring yellow flags in qualifying. Matt, looking at the incident for now, was uh, Hill used the word ambitious? Was that a fair characterization of this attempt? Bit of an understatement, wasn't it? It looked from the <laughs> outside like uh, if you saw that in Formula Ford, you'd think, oh, that guy's got a massive grudge against the other one, and this is how he's uh, putting it into practice. It wasn't really a move. You know, he was, they weren't alongside at any point until Hill careered into the side of uh, of Nakano's Prost under braking. This was just all of Hill's frustrations at being let go by Williams, choosing arrows and it working out so badly at first, all of that manifesting itself in one lunge that basically said, I just do not care where I finish in this race or if I finish, meh. Even in my capacity as as Damon Hill fan from the time and wanting to 
correct some of the misinterpretations of him. I don't think there's anything you can do to defend this particular moment. It's that it's just absolutely a driver who was frustrated because he started from the pit lane, was frustrated by the situation, seemed almost indignant at Shinji Nakano for not getting out of the way. Presumably he forgot he wasn't lapping him. And it just all boiled over in that moment of, of frustration and anger. And I mean, I've got a lot of time for Damon Hill, but I think there was a certain amount of uh, of, of disrespect for the efforts of both Nakano <laughs> and Prost in that moment. It was just a, a proper, oh, what's the point kind of moment. <laughs> a bit like in a racing game if you're struggling and you just do something ridiculous and it just ends up like that. So it was, yeah, indefensible. I think even Damon Hill in the interview from the time uh, struggled a bit because he sort of talked about it and said, oh, Nakano got in my way. And then he did say at the end of the little interview, it's in the season review, said I was also a bit cheesed off about starting at the back and everything. So I think that's as close as you'll get to a admission of a, yeah, I just thought, oh, let's just have a go for the sake of it. Because I don't really mind if I crash out and take someone with me. <laughs> you said disrespect there, Ed, and that really that really stuck with me at the time. Okay, I was biased as a non-Hill fan. But the attitude around this collision was I shouldn't be among these people, so who cares? Now, I've got so much respect for Damon now, particularly after reading his autobiography and how he characterizes his mental state through those years in the mid-90s. And you know, he he's put himself into proper perspective in that. And I absolutely understand everything around how he acted at the time and uh, resent myself for being so negative about him in that period. But yeah, in, in the moment, where he says, I don't belong among these people. Well, actually, Dave, at that point, you did. You had signed for a backmarker team. You weren't lifting it above the back of the grid at that point. They were your rival. You just drove into one of them. In fairness to Damon, uh, it's, it was reported that he did uh, he did admit fault uh, in the steward's office. Uh, maybe just a bit het up when he got interviewed around the back of, of the trucks. Uh, on the subject of Damon's book there, uh, people always ask us for book recommendations. At some point, we'll do some something around the best books or, or create a, a book club or something. But if you want a recommendation right now, if you've not read Damon Hill's book, definitely go and read it. it it's not just a racing driver book. It's not just a sport book. It, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a personal inward looking study of the human mind, I think. And, and Damon's got an incredible story to tell and he tells it brilliantly in that book. So if you've not read it, go, go and get yourself a copy Ed, just lastly, what did you think of the suspended ban punishment? That hasn't come up much in Bring Back V10s so far. They were being handed out quite a lot at this time. Looking at the offences people were getting them for, I almost compare it now to kind of the, the small three and five place grid penalties we get. As a suspended ban and the threat that carried, is that any better as a punishment than a small grid penalty for next time out? I'm inclined to say that for when it's safety critical things or really destructive bits of driving, you do need to have something tangible because the suspended bans tend to be slightly empty threats because they're almost never enacted. I say almost there because, of course, without giving away what happens later in 97, of course, Jacques Villeneuve did trigger his suspended ban eventually for various, uh, I think it was quite a few yellow flag offences during the era. Yeah, but it was a different one. So this this one expired and he still managed to earn another one and then trigger that. Uh, brilliant. It wasn't even the same accumulation. So yeah, yeah. that's a, a serial, uh, serial offender there, very much so. And when it's safety critical, I mean, the consequences of hitting a marshal or hitting a recovery vehicle are very, very clear. So I think you've got to not mess about with these. So I actually prefer, although grid penalties are a little bit irritating, the, the amount they proliferate, I prefer that to uh, the suspended bans. I think the, the a suspended ban should be slightly different 
and you could cover this with a better super license point system, as in penalty points, not the uh, qualification points uh, these days. But yeah, suspended bans tend to feel a bit like getting away with it, if you see what I mean. But they, they're in a, a moment of caution. But I think, yeah, for safety cases, you've got to have something proper. And those suspended bans were kind of the start of getting a little bit more serious about this kind of thing in F1. You start to see more of these happening in this period. So this is probably the point where we're edging towards the the modern world of uh, FIA penalties. At the sharp end of the race, then, there were only three cars in it, the two Williamses and Schumacher's Ferrari. And part of the reason for that was that two of the other established big teams, McLaren and Benetton, were all at sea, particularly in qualifying. The McLarens qualified 8th and 10th, although David Coulthard was uh, up to 4th, I think, by the time his engine blew, uh, as we mentioned at the start of the episode. And he felt that he had a winning car in race trim that was being let down by McLaren's struggles in qualifying. Benetton were even more at sea in qualifying they were 11th and 14th the team thought it had solved its handling problems in testing before the race weekend but both Gerhard Berger and Jean Alessi admitted they didn't understand what was going wrong with the car both teams snuck into the points Alessi was fifth and Mick Hakkinen was sixth for McLaren but they were both a lap down and comfortably beaten by the Jordan of Giancarlo Fisichella Matt like me I know you're a big admirer of the 97 season is that partly because when this was one of those years where when the big teams dropped the ball, like McLaren and Benetton did here, they were actually punished for it by the midfield runners? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's about 50% of the intertwined two reasons why I love this season and think it's F1 perfection, almost. You know, you you want a strong title battle narrative that you can, you can follow through the season. It had that with Villeneuve and Schumacher. The fact they had controversies was even better. But it wasn't like they were the only two people who mattered all season. Nearly every team got on the podium at some point. It was, you know, it was just Minardi and Tyrrell that didn't. Benetton was rubbish here, but had moments when it won a race and could have won others. There was this amazing crisscross, partly prompted by the tyre war, but also prompted by some teams being on the way down, like Benetton, others being on the way up, like Jordan to an extent. And it meant there was no room for error. But it changed. It changed every week. And sometimes when the competitive picture changes every week, the season becomes just this confusing mess where someone wins a championship by finishing sixth all the time because everybody else wins one week and there's 15th the next week like some of those formula e seasons that were no fun or gt racing with his balance of performance and weight penalties all over the place and you're like who won this don't know don't care 97 had a proper title battle and everyone had a shot at a race or two of headlines and that's impossible to deliberately create you have to let circumstances align for it but it was it was superb and i wish every season could be like it and it, it benefited from people like Benetton and McLaren getting things really wrong at times and some proper upstarts being there to punish them 90 uh, the reason I hate 98 was it was just slight generalization it was just relentlessly McLaren Ferrari all the time if they got it wrong they were third and fourth not first and second who cares yeah well said at the front then Schumacher had got between Villeneuve and Frentzen at the start by beating Frentzen off the line then it all changed at the first pit stops where Villeneuve dropped from first to third and Frentzen who stayed out the longest before pitting and putting some hot laps on light fuel he jumped from third to first just getting out ahead of Schumacher despite a long pit stop due to a slow wheel change so he really did have the time in back in hand Villeneuve's hopes were dashed in the middle of the race by a gearbox problem that we won't talk about anymore. Um, so the race boiled down to a battle between Frentzen and Schumacher. 
Once he got into the lead, Francis said he wasn't thinking about winning the race, just getting rid of Michael as quickly as possible. Then when he felt comfortable out front, he backed off as he was worried about suffering another brake failure like he had in the Australian Grand Prix. Ed, once Frenson got out front, was this looking like a pretty simple victory to bring home? Yeah, I put him in the box seat. He made the most of those extra laps in the first stint, as you said. Had control of the race. Could have been a more tense finish had things panned out slightly differently. But fundamentally, he was in control because Villeneuve was probably the biggest problem because he was in the same car and the Williams was the stronger car. So... Yeah, he asserted himself through that pit stop phase and the way was clear if he did even a par job from that perspective, that race was won. So it was then all a question of can Frentzen execute the race from this point? And he, of course, had been helped out by, I think Salo got a little bit in Villeneuve's way on his in-nap as well, which is why Villeneuve lost so much time. So yeah, just a nice position to be in if you're Heintzeld Frentzen because yeah, you've got competition still there in the form of Schumacher. But you know, if you just don't put a foot wrong, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, Imola, not an easy place to overtake. So as long as he didn't make a mistake, it was going to be hard to lose the lead. Schumacher was happy with his second place, uh, saying afterwards he expected to be third and his aim for the race was to beat one Williams, which technically he did because one didn't finish. He wasn't happy with Nicola Larini, though as the Sauber driver held him up before his second stop. To make matters worse, Schumacher locked up behind Larini and had to pit earlier than planned. And to make matters even worse, Larini happened to pit at the same time, still hadn't got out of the way. And if you watch the footage, he clearly doesn't attack the pit entry in the same way you'd expect Michael Schumacher to. Ferrari boss John Tott was reported to have marched down to the Sauber pit wall, no doubt reminding the team who now supplied their engines. But Schumacher was unsure if Larini impacted the result of the race. He said, I could have done a little bit better before my second pit stop uh, if I wouldn't have had this traffic issue with Larini. He saw me in his mirrors, I think, and suddenly he was very slow. Maybe he was trying to get out, get out of my way. Whatever it was, he made me lock up my right front tyre and I had to come in immediately so I couldn't follow my plan. It's the question mark whether it would have changed the situation. The first pit stop was the crucial one and there we lost out. So, And from there, the race was decided. Matt, even if this didn't affect the outcome of the race, should Larini have done better here as a backmarker? Uh, yes, in terms of as a backmarker, he should have driven a bit faster so that his team scored more <laughs> points and he wasn't sacked within a month of this race. Um, I'm, in terms of should he have leapt out of the way? No, really, just... I'm not a Blue Flags fan. I think it should be more more part of the art of F1 to find your way through traffic, bully drivers out of the way if you need to. If a car that has pulled a minute and a half advantage over another car cannot overtake that car, that is the fault of the F1 rules making overtaking too hard if it's got that much of a performance advantage. I, I, yeah, I, throwing out a kind of open door for leaders to lap you, especially if you've got political affiliations with them, I, yeah. Not for that at all. So I know it's, you know, if one backmarker is is blocking you and others don't, excuse it. But uh, no, what Lorini should have done here was drive the pit entry faster and kind of showed a bit more enthusiasm for scoring some points for Sauber and ignore, yeah, Schumacher lapping him is Schumacher's problem. I think Lorini could have done himself a bit more 
of a service here because, like you say, he was Ferrari affiliated. He was in that seat because of Ferrari. Sauber didn't really want him. He felt quite unwelcome in that team. It wasn't going that well. So it would have been sensible not to get in the way of the Ferrari just from a pragmatic perspective. I'm sure it wasn't totally coincidental. He only had one more race for that team before he was replaced by Gianni Morbidelli. So just it, it just seemed to be Lorini being just a little bit unusually belligerent he could be that kind of character I like Lorena I got to know him a bit when covering world touring cars but I don't know quite what was going through his mind there you'd have thought that just setting aside all those competition things about lapping back markers just from a pure self-interest perspective just think well he's effectively my stable mate let's at least not get in the way let's at least not make him lock up and have an early pit stop and not be able to put more pressure on Heinzfeld Frenson because that's the one interesting thing would Frenson have stood up to Schumacher being in a little bit more of a competitive situation that last in? Who knows? But Luigi certainly didn't help who were fundamentally his employers in Ferrari. This has reminded me of another of the things I was really wrong about when age 16, as alongside Frenson's prospects at Williams. My enthusiasm for Morbidelli replacing Lorini, and my, this enthusiasm was based basically on that Adelaide podium in the Narrows and that good Ferrari qualifying at Adelaide. And when he stepped in, that enthusiasm was so great, I declared to my sixth form common room that I thought Morbidelli could win the Spanish Grand Prix, given that Herbert was having quite a good season, the other Sauber, and Morbidelli was clearly such a massive upgrade on Lorini. So I I, I think I, I tried to keep that loyalty to Morbidelli even through his underwhelming British touring car season with Volvo, and then was just like, nah, nah Matt, you were, you were wrong. He was just good at Adelaide. So how did you feel when Morbidelli got in the car, not only didn't finish the Spanish Grand Prix, but then very, very rapidly injured himself and was out of the car for a few races? Mm, I think I just went back to talk about car instead and tried to detract attention from it. I was wondering if you became a Norberto Fontana fan at this point. No, no, no. I resented him for not being Morbidelli. Yeah, nobody's a Norberto Fontana fan. Um, I'm curious about this common room. What common room were you in in the 90s where people... Well, did anyone care what you thought about Gianni Morbidelli? No, no. Okay. I was talking to the wall, really. Yeah, okay. That makes much more sense. <laughs> So, <laughs> Fredson got his first win, and as we mentioned at the start, he famously said afterwards, it was like oil on my soul, whatever that means. Uh, if if you do know what that means, obviously I, I, I've not Googled it. Um, if it has a meaning, let, let us know. Um, he also said he was confident for the rest of the season because Williams were making changes to the car for him that were making him much happier. As we know, it didn't work out. Frentzen didn't win again for Williams and he was a distant third in the championship until Schumacher was excluded for trying to take Villeneuve out in the Jerez finale. Uh, Frentzen briefly reflected on his 1997 season when he celebrated his 150th F1 race in 2003. In a team Q&A with Sauber to mark that occasion, he was asked what was the biggest disappointment of his career and he picked 1997. He said, that was the only season when I had a car with which I could have been world champion. But unfortunately, it didn't go well for me. Ed, take us back to April 1997. After Frentzen gets his first win, did you, like some of our audience mentioned at the start, did you expect him to kick on from here? Yeah, 100%. I may not have liked Frentzen for taking Damon Hill's drive, but he's clearly a very good driver and had done good stuff with Sauber and he was very much highly rated. So it very much seemed like this was just the settling in period. Obviously, he'd been demolished by Villeneuve famously in qualifying in Melbourne, but the size of those demolitions in qualifying was gradually reducing. It was about a third of a second, something like that. Emma still a chunk, but respectable, a good trend. As you said, he was getting on top of the setup 
A couple of weeks later, he was on pole at Monaco as well. So it wasn't just Imola, but there seemed to be this momentum building up. And obviously, he was trying to adapt to, adapt the car to suit him. Obviously, Hill had liked quite a soft car. He wasn't so keen on that. He was struggling with understeer. So it just felt like you had this driver who had great potential, had just had a bit of a full start. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? New environment, you don't quite get into it. So this seemed like the key breakthrough. Okay, a little bit of luck with Villeneuve's troubles in that race, having qualified behind him. But yeah tick off the win nice big confidence boost so yeah perhaps this this was the new normal this was going to be Heinz Haldfrenzen emerging as a championship contender what we didn't really realize is there were more deep-rooted and wider problems with Frenson and Williams that meant that this was never going to work but yeah that day at Imola you would have never said that day he will not win another race this season We'll end things uh, with a bit more of what Ed mentioned there as kind of Frentzen's perhaps incompatibility with Williams uh, via Jacques Villeneuve's thoughts on Frentzen. Because uh, Jacques uh, at the time was clearly put out by Frank Williams's obsession with Frentzen. Uh, as it's fair to say, not as put out as Damon Hill because he didn't lose his drive like Damon did. But Jacques didn't like all the fuss being made. Uh, speaking of Morris Hamilton's book about the history of Williams, that's another recommendation uh, I would definitely make. Villeneuve said, Frentzen was touted as the next world champion for Williams, so politically I was already in the wrong spot. Uh, but Jacques said Frentzen was not strong enough mentally and he collapsed as soon as the season got going. Villeneuve said Frentzen wasn't cut out for the high-pressure environment of Williams, particularly working with Patrick Head. Jack told F1 Racing magazine in 2005 that because he wouldn't listen to Head's advice on setup, Patrick put all of his energy into Heinz instead and he totally destroyed him. He said uh, Frentzen and his engineer would make setup changes that would end up not working just to make Patrick happy. Villeneuve expanded on this again to F1 Racing in 2014, where he said, the more you stand up to Patrick, the more he respects you. Either that or you get crushed. That's what happened to Frentzen. Patrick made him cry, then at one point said, well, you should just be like more like Jack and not listen to me. I don't know about you guys. I can hear Patrick Head saying that. <laughs> Why don't you be like the guy I'm always arguing with? Um, <laughs> Matt, regardless of how much of Jack's version you want to believe, all of it, um, <laughs> can we add Frentzen to the list of drivers who just weren't cut out for the Williams environment? Yeah, the, the whole sort of Frentz and Hill story is, like you said about Damon's book, it's a study of the human mind in a way. And it's a study of how it's, it's so easy to look at racing drivers as kind of binary things. If this driver was quick in this team, therefore they'll be quick in this team. They were quick in this championship, it's a big quick in this championship. This one is rubbish, there will be rubbish here as well. They're not, they're humans. Environments make a difference. Yeah, how they're treated, how they connect to people, how they communicate make a difference. This is one of the most agonizing examples of it. And thank goodness Frentzen had that one really good season with Jordan to kind of redeem himself. Because, okay, there's an awful lot used to be made of the fact that Frentzen was touted as being faster than Schumacher when they were Mercedes sports car teammates, which was a little bit of those degrees of Chinese whisper to that tale. But what he did with Sauber was... Often, not always, he wasn't consistently on it, but often very, very impressive across 94 to 96. He wasted some opportunities, uh, mainly Monaco 96 he could have won if he hadn't classed into Eddie Irvine. But this was a driver of enormous talent who was good enough to do something really special with Jordan in 99. Then things went wrong at Jordan as well. So there was definitely a, a fragility here and it definitely had, he was a sort of driver that needed to be in very particular circumstances to connect all the dots and, and really bring his true performance out. 
But Williams, as in, in the Frank Williams-Patrick Head era, was not going to be a team that would give a driver time or space to connect the dots or help in doing so. It was sink or swim. And if we can have a fight along the way, all the better. He was not an Alan Jones and Nigel Mansell or a Jacques Villeneuve. This was always going to be doomed, wasn't it? Not, I, I thought it would be a bit less doomed than this. But yeah, it wasn't going to work. And it's it's a shame. I think the remarkable thing is just how many factors there are on the list of reasons why Frentzen did not and would not work at, at Williams because you've got those sky-high, ridiculous expectations and I think that played a part. Williams expected Frentzen to get in that car and be brilliant from the first lap and when he wasn't, that created problems. Obviously, Glenn, you mentioned Villeneuve knew that Frentzen was seen as the uh, as the the guy who was going to beat him. So he did everything he could to make it different, uh, difficult for Frentzen. And Villeneuve loved nothing more than stringing Frentzen along a bit, then right at the end of qualifying going, oh, look, I'm massively quick. And that created problems for Frentzen as he was ramping up in qualifying. Even at Imola, he didn't make the most of his, of his last run there. He was looking a little bit more of a challenger uh, to Villeneuve up to that point. So that had a psychological impact on Frentzen. Frentzen frustrated Williams with that setup approach. How much of that was him? How much of that was Patrick Head? Patrick Head felt that Frentzen flip-flopped on setup. Well, how much of that was Frentzen being indecisive? How much was him trying to go along with what Williams wanted and trying to do his own thing at, at the same time. So that caused all sorts of confusion. And obviously Williams had underestimated Hill before him as as well, which played a, a part. Frentzen wasn't mentally robust enough either. The Williams environment wasn't great. Frentzen, we also know, needed a certain set of circumstances to work, even at Jordan as Matt alluded to, it kind of went away from him when he started getting more involved in the setup. It all comes down to Fundamentally, I think how great a driver is depends on how wide a band they can be at their best in. And the better the driver, the greater the driver, the wider that band. And it gradually narrows. There's drivers who can be race winners, sort of that second tier of drivers, but they need a certain amount working for them. Others need sort of even more going for them and can only be race winners on very certain days. But friends and I just think there were too many problems that the kind of centre of this multi-part Venn diagram of places where Heinz Harold Frentzen will work really well wasn't wide enough, which is a shame because he had an awful lot of raw ability. But going right back to that that uh, the Sauber sports car days where that quicker than Schumacher reputation, I talked about this I think on the first episode of the series about Hill. Frentzen got in the car wrung its neck and was really quick and impressed with just that that pure talent, if you want to use that word. It's a dangerous word. That feel, that ability to get into a car and really try it. But he, he couldn't refine that. He didn't have the all-round professionalism and, and mindset and everything to do that while under pressure. So Williams was the absolute worst possible crucible for him to be in. So he's better suited to an underdog team like Jordan and better suited to perhaps just jumping in the car, not getting too involved and seeing where it led him. Great driver on his day, but th- there was a quote from Patrick Head from the time, which I couldn't find, but I'm sure he did say it. I think it was in an interview with Adam Cooper, actually, where he said, during 97, I think... Heinz Harold is a driver who wins five Grand Prix in his career rather than 30. And he was absolutely right because I think he was more an honest day merchant. Very, very talented, but couldn't refine that into that constant gold that, say, a Michael Schumacher could. As well as that, when you sack the world champion midway through a season in which they're obviously going to win the championship in favour of someone else, the pressure loaded onto that somebody else even if they're very mentally strong, even if they're an established, experienced race winner from another team, is enormous. And Frentzen was none of those things. He was just 
a talented young driver who looks really good in the Sauber and bless Frank Williams for being the kind of team boss who'd just go, yeah, let's, let's just having that sheer excitement for motor racing. You'd see a driver like that. Okay, let's, I'm parking the BMW future engine deal importance of getting a German inside there. I'm going straight for the romance of Frank Williams going, this kid's talented. Let's sack Hill for him. But the, yeah, I can't imagine a team doing that today or any other team other than Frank Williams led Williams doing that at any point really doing that on such little evidence almost and then giving that no time to work and almost getting disillusioned from the very first lap where like you both said Frenson wasn't mind-blowing in his first test and it must have started the doubts in Williams's mind then spiraled those onto Frenson's mind it was yeah I yeah no one else would have done this and there's a reason for that I feel it was almost rooted in the fact Williams didn't sign Ayrton Senna first time round. Remember when he tested for them at Donington in 1983 and they, yeah. they missed out on Senna and they thought, right, here's this brilliant guy. And Senna, in fact, had talked up Frenson having followed him in a test. And it's just like, just that myth of him being the guy who was quicker than Schumacher just completely and utterly blinded them. And he couldn't ever possibly live up to that. But it's very interesting. If you look through the stuff Frenson said about it at the time, you can see... He didn't have that kind of ironclad self-belief in that when there was talk about him losing his drive, possibly before the end of the season, you know, a proper sort of top line drive. The, the average F1 driver would say, no way, I'm contracted. All the problems are uh, external to me. I'm doing what I need to do. Once the team gets it right, we're going to be great. But he was a bit more, oh, yeah, I don't know quite where it's going. I, I feel like probably Frenson was too normal in terms <laughs> of his mental makeup because we talk about how you've got to be ruthless and an extreme character to be one of these great drivers and perhaps Frenson wasn't that and that probably reflects him just being a more normally adjusted human being if you like and you put someone in a position like they were at Williams with that expectation and all these other things it's not a complete surprise that he lost his way I think you have to be careful about laying it all at the door of Williams. I mean, clearly, it's not a massively nurturing environment. Patrick Head is a, is a great guy, but he's very direct. He has a certain way of doing things. And I think even he subsequently admitted he slightly underestimated that not every driver is Alan Jones and basically you can say or do what you want with Alan Jones and he's basically just this lump of granite. You know, <laughs> beaten up at a roadside or whatever it was he was still <laughs> back in the car uh, <laughs> next race and uh, going pretty quickly. So... There was a little bit there, but I don't think if you put Frentzen in the perfect nurturing environment, you were guaranteed to get his best because then you need the car to be right and, and other things to be right. So it's just, a, I don't want to call it a shortcoming because he was an extremely successful driver, but there's reasons why you get guys like this who get to almost the second step and they can win races, which still takes something in Formula One but they're never quite going to be this this absolute superstar who's going to win a world championship in a championship winning car every time. They're more the people that perhaps have a, a mega season like 99 or mega races dotted around here or there. Very, very interesting for it though, Heinz Held Frentzen, I think. You talk about Frentzen lacking bandwidth, but as this conversation's gone on, I've, I've just thought more, more about the, the lack of bandwidth at Williams as well in that respect. It's like, okay, Patrick had enjoyed working with an argumentative driver like Villeneuve more. But you look through Williams' history, Mansell left twice. Villeneuve didn't stick around and went off and did his own bizarre thing. Yeah, I remember Juan Pablo Montoya being kind of touted as, this is sort of a bit Alan Jonesy. He's a really tough guy. This will work. That didn't work either. That got really fractious and, and fell apart. It's, a, it's an exaggeration to say that a team as successful as Williams could only work with Alan Jones but it really did need those traits to get the absolute, absolute best out of a driver and keep hold of them 
long term. Otherwise, it was just these kind of glorious periods of arguments still resulting in championships and then some kind of grumpy split. Yeah, and you clearly needed somebody a bit like Villeneuve as well, who was a strong character and seemed able to be quite combative. Because obviously, they liked a driver who was a bit combative as well. Or you needed someone, Hill's the, the strange one, because he, as he talks about in his book eloquently, doesn't have the obvious mental makeup to thrive in that scenario. But actually, despite the struggles of, say, 95, he actually did and did really, really well. And probably if he was in the car in 97, could well have won the world championship again. So he's perhaps the exception. But yeah, it was it was a a really, <laughs> a really, really strange and particular environment, I think. And it's strange because Frank Williams does have a great veneration of drivers. And maybe that was partly at the heart of this because he venerated the potential of Heinz Harald Frentzen and then the reality of Heinz Harald Frentzen was not remotely that it was going to be very very hard for it to be that considering how brilliant he was he was the guy who was better than Schumacher and who was better than Schumacher in that period well nobody really so you're setting this impossible target so perhaps that mentality in the team played its part as well I I don't think there was ever a I don't think there was a lack of respect for drivers as such, but I think there was always that look for the next mega one and that belief that kind of everything was right on the car side. So, yeah, a fascinating team in this period, particularly at a time when F1 was growing and transitioning into something slightly different. It was less sort of... It just became more formalised, didn't it? You couldn't just sort of cobble everything together and have a an Alan Jones-type character in there grabbing the car by the scruff of the neck. I, th- I think there's... Um, there's probably a book to be written in the whole Williams and drivers thing, and it's it's more complicated than just Williams not being right, but they certainly didn't make it easy. And certainly, as you say, that lack of great Williams and driver relationships, even the Alan Jones one came to a premature end when he decided he was going to retire. So, yeah, very, very interesting. And Frentzen, partly a victim of that, but partly a victim of other things as well. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think Williams dealt him a tough hand. It's one thing to come in uh, as the guy who's supposedly quicker than Schumacher. He had that anyway. But to come in as the guy who the world champion has been dropped for is incredible. You've, you've got to be seriously good. And I imagine there are a lot of people lower down the team who felt that way as well. Frentzen comes in and they're all going to be like, right, come on, how good are you? Prove to us that Damon, who we quite liked, deserved to be booted out for you the flip side of that is if you're good enough and you're tough enough you're in the best car go out and win the world championship um so yeah neither side neither side was perfect and as for williams drivers um we know we've we've covered in many other episodes during this era of the 90s frank williams believed that it was all about the car and that the drivers were interchangeable (laughs) the other note about this is as you say it's down to the driver to deliver this is really difficult it doesn't have to be a massively nurturing environment. Yes, you've got to get the best out of the drivers, but it's down to the driver fundamentally to make it work for them. There's a reason it's very, very difficult. It's the absolute top of elite sport and across all disciplines. This is phenomenally difficult to get to that absolutely top level, which is why even a driver who is perceived to have failed like Frentzen still did very, very well. 
Yeah, it, it's elite sport. It's supposed to be hard and uh, only a few people are supposed to be really good at it. That's it for Imola 97 then. We often get asked if we're going to talk about Frentzen in a bit more depth. So his only Williams win felt like the best opportunity to do that. Hence the end of the episode was a, a kind of Frentzen deep dive for you. Uh, that also means, of course, that we've covered 100% of his Williams victories. Uh, thanks to Matt and Ed for joining us for this one. We've got one more regular episode to go in the series before we get to our end of season specials. So next time out, we're heading to the first race of 2002, the Australian Grand Prix, famous for one of the biggest first corner pileups in F1 history. And of course, home hero Mark Webber scoring points for Minardi on his F1 debut. The Athletic.